Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 16th episode of the Bad Motor GP show. I hope you like our new background because the new Grizzini livery is uh, one of our favorites uh, on the grid. Um, unfortunately, it's just a one-off, but I feel like uh, a white bike fits the grid very, very well. Uh, I was talking with uh, Keelan before, and uh, the livery is so stunning. So, yeah, and uh, we had some stunning races in Misano. Keelan, you enjoyed them? Yes. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Bad Moto GP main podcast. Obviously, it's been a minute since you've seen me. I've been here and there. I've done a couple of things. Many people have done a great job in my absence, and I'm very thankful for that. But we are back to discuss Mizano, sweet home Mizano, as Valentino Rossi would say. And yes, indeed, Leo, I did enjoy the races as always. Every single race I thought was actually pretty brilliant. We had drama in Moto3, Moto2 and MotoGP, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. Yeah, I mean, we need to start with uh, Ducati and the man on the background, Inea Bastianini. Because uh, he's promoted to the factory seat. I remember our uh, off-season, our off-season episode. I suggested Jorge Martin would be the better choice. But now thinking about it, there are a few things that I didn't thought about at the time. Which was Ducati is an Italian manufacturer. An Italian rider is always better. And now it showed a little bit more that Inea Bastianini might be the better choice because he sorted out his qualifying in Austria and in Misano. And uh, yeah, he showed what uh, what's possible uh, today. Unfortunately, in Misano, it was a little bit uh, of a tricky situation with Jorge Martin where his front wheel uh, got a dent, I believe, and he wasn't able to continue. But uh, yeah. He is, uh, in my opinion, now the right decision to Ducati because between those two, it's like splitting hairs. But uh, when you think about it and look at the statistics, for example, Jorge Martin is more injury prone. He is more likely to crash. And uh, despite Inea Bastianini winning it or binning it this season, he has over his MotoGP career more consistency. And I feel like everything Jorge Martin did um Inea Bastianini did slightly better like Jorge Martin was good in uh, Moto3 and won the title there Inea Bastianini was good in Moto2 won the title there uh, Jorge Martin has one uh, win in MotoGP Inea Bastianini has three uh, he is more consistent he is more healthy and he's Italian you know um it's it still uh, wouldn't be the wrong decision to promote Martin but I feel like uh, Inea is slightly better but yeah, um, now to the races. Um, I mean, Peko and uh, and Inea were both super fast. And Peko said the pace picked up as the race uh, went on. I mean, uh, last year he had the hard front tire and crashed, which always was in the back of my mind when I saw him, especially pushing towards the end. I was like, Peko, please don't crash take a second position if if necessary but uh crash uh, don't crash and uh yeah but he didn't he prevailed he uh he had an incredible uh battle or not really a battle but they were close mm. with uh, Inea Bastianini so how did you uh, see the whole uh race between Peko and Inea 
Yeah. Um, first of all, it was a brilliant, brilliant race. It really was. Um, I thought Peku managed it very, very well. I have, I mean, every race he's won, he's managed pretty much from the front. And he's shown that he has that Jorge Lorenzo ability to just get in front, keep it ticking, wind down the laps, and manage his tires generally very well as well. And Mizano today was no different. Um, he did a brilliant job, very smooth, very composed, but I got to give a lot of credit to Enea Bastianini. I really, really do. And Leo, I actually got to give you credit as well because it was actually you who said Bastianini should be in the factory team. I think I actually advocated Jorge Martin, but I actually oh, think. Sorry to interrupt you, but I had Jorge Martin as well. Did you? Yeah. Oh, well, one of us got it wrong. Either way, regardless of who got it right, I do think it was actually the right decision at the end of the day. Bastianini, especially this season, has just matured levels. He really, really has. And he looked, he actually looked like a premier class world champion today, in my eyes. He really, really did. I thought he had a spectacular race. Um came through qualifying pretty well. And those last few laps with Banyaya were really, really good. I actually thought he would pressure Banyaya and Banyaya would slip up. But credit to Peko, he managed the pressure very, very well. And we ended up having a bit of a photo finish as well, which credit to both guys, they did very, very well. Um, overall, Peko deserved winner. First ever MotoGP Ducati rider to win four races in a row. Won four of the last six. We're through, we're through stage four of the bad MotoGP mean Peko Banyaya cycle every season now, where he looks like he's going to win the title. Will stage five happen? We don't know but we'll wait and see. Paco, more than deserved winner. Enea Bastianini proved that he's Banyaya's equal, and he proved that that Ducati factory team next season, they're going to be a real problem. I mean, if they can fix the testing in preseason, they'll be a problem. But those two are just so, so good on that bike. They really are. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people had like an argument for Zarco for the champion, uh, for the factory seat which in my opinion always was pretty stupid because mm. if you would have wanted Zarco there, you could have just kept Jack Miller because Jack Miller is a better version of Sean Zarco. Yeah. Uh, but they decided that they uh, didn't want that. So Zarco was off the table for me with that move. And uh, now Inea proved today again that he's the right decision. And Peko is super fast now. He has won four in a row, as you mentioned. And now something changed in the championship because Peko is exactly 30 points behind Fabio. That means if theoretically Peko wins every race and uh, Fabio finished uh, second at every race, it's uh, not possible for uh, Fabio to retain his title. And uh, that means if Peko continues this form somewhere along the line, Fabio has to be uh, able to beat Peko. Yeah, and yeah. I'm looking forward to it, uh, considering that Peko crumbled under pressure before. It's not uh, too far away that he maybe crashes again or has a bad weekend. But Fabio still has a comfortable lead, but he can't afford to get more of those races. And we are heading to Aragon now, uh, which isn't necessarily his favorite track. So, yeah, it could be tricky, but still the overseas races will decide everything because we haven't been there since 2019. And, uh, yeah, but back to Misano. 
Paco super fast, but I got the feeling that Inea Bastianini was faster. And uh, two things here. Inea Bastianini, the last thing he would want to do is uh, crash into Paco. That's yeah. basically the last thing he uh, he needed to do because uh, if then maybe Ducati would have fired him and uh, and uh, took Jorge Martin now. <laughs> I don't know if they have like a clause in the contract, like don't take Peko out or we will uh, fire you. <laughs> no, but it would be, it would be very unfortunate. So that's the last uh, thing he would do. Um, but still, he wanted to win and he showed it. But I felt like he simply couldn't overtake, which is a huge problem in MotoGP. We had it over the season that races were uh, boring. This race wasn't necessarily boring, but it could have been much more interesting if Maverick Vinales and Enea Bastianini were able to actually overtake uh, Peko. Let's uh, remember Aragon last year where Marc Marquez launched, I believe, seven overtakes in the last lap uh, or the last two laps, whatever, uh, against Peko. This is what we want to see. And um, yeah... So this showed to me that the problems of modern MotoGP still exist. And if you look closely, like Maverick, for example, he did it very, very obvious. He wasn't riding in the slipstream of uh, Peko. He was always going out of the slipstream, in my opinion, to cool his front tire down. And that could also be a reason why he dropped off towards the end, because he was cooking his tires. And this is simply shit. We don't want to see this. We want to uh, have close racing. We got this, but we still have no overtakes because most overtakes, uh, which we saw on the broadcast, were set up by a mistake by the leading rider. Yeah. Yeah, I had this uh, almost crash uh, in, what was it, turn 11, I believe. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I believe uh, there were a couple more, I can't remember, uh, where a rider in front made a mistake and uh, then uh, the other rider got the overtake. I believe Marini and uh, Bastianini had a situation too where uh, Bastianini made a mistake. Marini went through and uh, Inea um, recovered the position immediately on straight. But yeah, those is not necessarily what I want to see. I want to see battling uh, between Inea and Peko and Maverick in this instant. And maybe Fabio, if there was a a little bit more of a chance would have been able to uh, maybe close the gap and battle with them. If they stop battling, they're slower, you know? And this is a little bit sad to me because it, you see it with uh, Inea, you see it with uh, Maverick that it it feels like the last step to a perfect race because this could have been a perfect race. And uh, yeah. But still, I believe Inea Bastinini, uh was the better man today but he simply couldn't overtake and maybe he didn't want to risk a hundred percent because of Ducati you know but yeah it's a little bit sad you know well it's a very fair theory I do agree with what you say Leo I think you're absolutely correct and the point about Anaya is very interesting because I actually do agree and the thing that really impressed me the most about Anaya today aside from his general riding which in itself was brilliant the most impressive thing with Anaya Bastianini today was in the last lap of the race, he set the fastest lap of the race. And that tells me a lot about Anaya Bastianini's ability. It tells me he knows when to push the pace. 
It tells me that he knows how to manage tires. And it tells me that he can remain a rapid threat up until the very, very end of the race. And that's what impressed me the most about Inea. It wasn't Peko that set the fastest lap. It wasn't Maverick that set the fastest lap. It was Inea Bastianini. All roads are pointing to a very, very positive end of this season and next season as well. So whilst Peko won, and he deserves all the plaudits for that because he did have a great race, I do agree that one eye should be on Inea Bastianini because he was my rider of the race today. Yeah, and he had this mistake in turn four. That's right. Almost clipped Peko, and uh, this costed him at least two tenths, I believe. So if he had clean air, and this was also uh, something that uh, was shown due uh, to the, um, um, it was shown very evidently uh, when a rider had a gap because of a mistake or whatever, they were able to close those gaps immediately because they were simply faster than Peko. I mean, uh, Maverick had those situations, Inia Vastini had those situations. You could close a gap pretty fast, but you can't get past and that's a little bit sad, you know? And uh, I refuse to believe that Inia Bastianini didn't want to win the race. He won. Well, of course he, he did. I mean, he's not the type of guy to let Peko have the victory uh, for the championship. I mean, we're talking about a Moto2 world champion and Inia Bastianini. He wants to win everything that he can win. It goes back to this whole point about Arrow and the lack of ability to overtake. And it is starting to become a bigger problem with every race. You're absolutely correct. If he'd have had the proper arrow coming out of that, he absolutely would have tried to overtake. A lot of people think, I mean, obviously, people who are watching this, you will have the common sense to know not to listen to the internet unless it's bad MotoGP memes or everything motor racing, then you do listen to it. But I saw people saying, you know, this was like Ferrari team orders not to try and overtake. And that's absolutely ridiculous. And they Bastianini is a born competitor and a born winner. Of course, he's going to try and win. And he would like to send a message to Peko. If he was able to overtake him and beat him, he would send a message like, bro, I'm the top dog next year. Watch of out. You, you are not the number one rider anymore, even though he is, but it would send a message in this uh, direction. Look and, at me. I am the Ducati captain now. Yeah, I'm the captain now. <laughs> like Maverick did uh, with Aleish. But yeah. um, regarding Maverick, this is exactly what you pointed out. There were uh, out of turn six into turn sevens. There were so many onboards where you could see Maverick was close to Peko and able to overtake, but then he wasn't because he didn't have the braking stability on the Aprilia, which, which I believe is a little bit of a weak point because you can see it uh, through the whole season that uh, Elish, for example, in Jerez or uh, in different races in uh, Argentina, they were struggling to pass because the Aprilia seems to work very well in free air. But as soon as they are stuck, maybe a little bit of braking stability is missing. Maybe they can't deal with the dirty air as well. You don't know, but um, it's a problem for Apulia that they can't overtake. And also when you have these ride height devices, like when your bike settles down and uh, is accelerating as fast as possible, you have the wings pressing down and then you basically reach the limit of what's uh, possible much more, you know, um, rather than it was just a normal bike, I would say. So there you have 
less chance as a rider to make a difference with a good exit or with a good breaking point because you have all these extras, you know? And uh, this is also something when the tire is on its limit, you can't go over the limit of the tire because it's not possible. It's like the last thing. You can sometimes override a motorcycle because like, especially if you aren't as good of a rider let's say you're a hobby rider or you're an amateur or whatever you can override these uh, bikes because they can do much more than what you can do but exactly if yeah you, if you have the perfect motorcycle and let's assume the ducati is the perfect motorcycle at the moment um you can't risk it more to overtake you can't push that little bit extra if you're on the limit of the bike and of the tire you can't do more you can't break later you can't accelerate faster and the rider becomes i would say less important he's still very important but not as important as when you have um like a very small percentage you know but uh when you have all these extras on the bike which helps you i mean you see it on the picture behind me you have uh three wings at the um at the front of the bike two wings at the back you have a front right height device you have a rear right height device all these things stress the tires more they stress the rider more because you can brake later you can accelerate faster all of this shit and yeah at some point you reach the limit of what's possible and when you can't go over the limit because we are limited by physics at the end um when you can't go over there, you get a result like this, where you are stuck behind a rider and you know you can go faster, but you can't get past them. We see it all the time in Formula One, especially with the old cars, you know? And uh, they did a good job uh, with the new cars to uh, get rid of this. And MotoGP is getting rid of the front ride height devices at the, um, at the beginning of next season. But the manufacturers, they... The, they spend so much money in uh, developing those wings uh, because all the wind, wind tunnel, they spend money in developing the right height device. It's basically the same thing with the electronics a couple of years ago when Honda threatened to exit MotoGP because uh, MotoGP wanted to have a um, have the same software for everybody. So it's the same thing. They invested so much money in that and it's so incredibly hard to get rid of. But Donna needs to prove a point here and get rid of those uh, stuff like they tried to get rid of winglets and failed because they don't know how to write rules you know and uh now we are stuck in this situation with declining uh declining and a declining audience and this race would have been perfect for everybody who attended the race live who watched it on tv like showing it to your friends for example, uh, I showed my mom today the fight between Cyril Gan and Taito Iwasa. If you watched it, you know what I mean. This is so amazing, and you want to you want to show it to people, but you can't show him three riders just riding uh, behind each other because they will say, "Okay, it's boring." If you have like a personal um, relationship, or not like personal relationship in a way that you know them but if you have your favorite rider or your rider you don't like or whatever you know your favorite manufacturer you want uh this person to win you want that person to lose whatever this makes the sport interesting but it gets more interesting to people who don't know much about the sport the new audience and maybe the audience they lost because of valentino rossi because of mark marcus to get more 
into the spot and develop those relationships relationships because you you fall in love with riders like mark marcus who just risk it all the time launches spectacular overtakes there are people who like it or there there are even people who like uh, Jorge lorenzo but if you if you're stuck in a situation where nothing happens but potentially everything could happen it's a little bit unfortunate you know and i would like uh, MotoGP to have a stance there and say we are banning wings we are banning right height devices and uh, make the sport more accessible to new fans this is like a big uh, solution for donna because they don't know what uh, what they're doing but with all of this, you uh, you gather a new audience. You bring back people you maybe lost, you know. And it it could have been so great today. It could have been perfect with Peko battling uh, with Maverick, and then Enea Vasinini comes in. Luca Marini closes the gap. Um, Fabio Quattavaro closes the gap. You have a you have a, such an even playing field right now that it's sad that we are not getting treated with a race like Catalonia 2009 or Aragon last year or Lorenzo and and Pedrosa in Brun, whatever, you know? Phillip Island 2015. Phillip Island 2015. We had Assen, I believe, 2018. 17? No, 17 was raining, I believe. 17? Um, no, it was 18. You're right. I think it was 18. But I'm not sure. I'm not... I'm not sure. No, 16 was raining. 16 was when Jack Miller won. It could have been 16. Uh, it could have been 17, could have been 18. I don't know. But yeah, there was one Assen race, which was absolutely amazing with all of the overtakes, you know? And we need stuff like this. And yeah, it's like the big topic at the moment uh, with MotoGP and also the sprint races, because if sprint races look like this, oh, they aren't they aren't fixing it, you know? If you have if you take the first 10 or 12 laps of this Grand Prix, it's not very interesting because they are just riding behind each other, you know? And if they they want to overtake, but they simply can't. So it doesn't fix it. Dorna, this is the problem, okay? We don't want more racing. We want better racing. Sprint... Obviously, I've been away for a minute, okay, and we haven't had the chance to discuss sprint racing along with everything else that's been happening. But this is the worst solution to the problem that I've heard so far. And Dorna have come up with some pretty shit solutions, it must be said. Why in God's name do you think of all the things that you would take from Formula One? Hang on a minute. We have we already have boring racing. Let's make more boring racing in the middle of every weekend. What are these people thinking? This isn't going to fix the problem. This is going to make the problem worse than it already is. We don't want to see more of Ducati dominating at the front during every single race that there is. We want to see better racing where every manufacturer is relatively close to each other and anybody can really win on a race weekend. This is just, oh my God, I don't even know what to say, Leo. I really do not. But you are correct. It speaks to a much wider problem in MotoGP. The lack of competitiveness and the lack of characters bringing their bikes up to make it competitive. It's a massive, massive problem. And look, when Valentino retired last year, we knew MotoGP would take a hit because he's an icon. That we expected. The problem is, is that we're... Re uh, you actually used an excellent phrase there, and I agree with that. We're reaching the limit of motorsport physics now, where... 
we have a bike like an Aprilia that is so brilliant now, but it's it's reached its apex. It can't do any more. If it's behind a Ducati, it can't get past because it can't supersede the physics of what it's already facing. So the problem is, is that we've got to strip these bikes of a lot of these. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong, Anaya's bike is stunningly beautiful. Shout out Grassini for the livery. But it's got like six fighter jet wings on it. How are you going to get past that bloody thing? Whether it's on a street or the corner, how do you expect anybody else to pass that? Fabio Quartararo is already down about 20 kilometers an hour in top speed. And you expect him to pass a fighter jet with six winglets on it? I mean, I, I just don't get it. I really, really don't. But Dorna... I can promise you MotoGP is going to keep suffering season on season for this. It's it's getting to a point now where the rider is almost to some degree becoming more and more irrelevant. And it's just the bike that you're on. I mean, for example, Alex Marquez is currently with LCR Honda and he's struggling because he can't get to grips with the Honda bike. He could be in the top five next year because he's going on a Ducati. That's not indicative of a rider's level, which bike they're on. I mean, you could put, we'll talk about him much. We'll talk about him later because I'm sure we've got a lot to discuss. You could put Remy Gardner on a Ducati and he'd be near the top five because all these guys are talented, but we need the bikes to be matching the level of the riders that we have. I mean, that's all I'm going to say for now because I'll say something I regret, but you, you speak to a much wider issue and it's something that needs discussed. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the biggest joke of it all is the um, the results of the MotoGP fan survey were released before this weekend. And uh, there was a field of uh, what fans don't want and it was uh, fans don't want uh, sprint qualifying races. So what they did, they crossed out the qualifying and made only sprint races. Asked the fans, like, what do you want? Okay, we do the exact opposite. Of course you're losing fans. What the fuck? I mean, how could you be so corrupt? I mean, all they want to do with those sprint races is gather money. And okay, I understand it. It's a business. But how about you make your product better to sell it to a broader audience than to make just more of it. More of a shitty product isn't necessarily cutting it, you know? And um, like the perfect reference is, would you rather watch the Super Bowl or game two of the NBA finals? You know, it's like the Super Bowl is once a year. It doesn't make the Super Bowl more interesting to have a best of seven uh, series. It's interesting because it's one game and everything counts. MotoGP is interesting because there's one race and everything counts, you know? And uh, yeah, regarding the wingnuts, I have a theory. Right now we have the picture of Inia Bastianini's dinosaur wings at the back. They say it's uh, to benefit braking stability on the rear, that the rear isn't... Uh, hopping into the air so much because there's a little bit more force pushing it down but i also believe that uh, they are creating less of a slipstream for the following rider with it because oh, yeah. i i believe that uh, it would benefit the ducati because they can afford it to lose maybe a kilometer per hour on the straight and therefore the uh, the following bike loses maybe two kilometers an hour because they don't have the uh, exact slipstream like they would have without it just a theory i don't know but um yeah i could uh, definitely see it and this adds more to the problem because if you can't 
uh, get close in the slipstream, you won't overtake, yada, yada, yada. No. It's distorting the slipstream for the rider behind. That, yeah. that's, that is what those winglets are, ladies and gentlemen. They are a slipstream distortion device. I don't think there's anything to that bullshit about stabilizing braking because the Ducati can do that anyway. What this is is distorting the slipstream for the rider behind so they can't get that boost. I actually agree with you, yeah. and I think you're on to something. Yeah, I mean, it could do both. You know, it's uh, entirely possible because when you have a force going down on your rear, it's uh, also possible that at the same time when you're accelerating, the air is directed in a way which uh, disrupts the slipstream, maybe, you know. Um, but also, I want to add, like, Marco Bezecchi, he crashed out in P4, P5, whatever, um, today, and he was really, really good. Jack Miller also, he was leading a race, crashing out. And when you see uh, what Bezecchi did last year, in comparison to Remy and Raul, you know, they were much better last year. And it's not untypical that uh, maybe the hierarchy of a rider or of a couple of riders change when they change classes. Could be that maybe uh, Marco Bizzecki is just better on a MotoGP bike, but could also be that the KTM is just a piece of shit, you know? Probably, yeah. That is, that, that's most likely what it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it sucks for Marco Bezzecchi. He had a very good weekend, actually. Um, decent qualifying and was having a very good race. Shame that he crashed out when he did. See, I mean, I think Jack ended up finishing in like P18 or something. So at least he got back and finished the race. But disappointment for him as well. He'd have been expecting a lot better from this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Marini, he was solid. P4. Very solid. Solid, you know, it's like a good uh, result for him, and he still has a little bit of the issue that towards the end he can't uh, keep up with the guys in front. But yeah, that's the difference between a Nevasinini and a Luca Marini, and I believe he's doing great. He's developing very, very well, and yeah, it's just he's maybe not uh, factory uh, material, but he's still on onto a podium, I believe, and yeah. We have uh, discussed a lot and we went down a couple of rabbit holes and uh, I would like to dis discuss Aleish if he is losing a little bit uh, the chance to win the title right now. I think so. I absolutely think so. Um, the problem with Aleish Spargaru is that this, the piece, basically anywhere from P6 to P8 is a really, really good finish. The problem is, is that Peko Banyaya has come back into form and is charging up the title ranks now again. And the problem is, if you want to seriously contend for the title, you've got to be fighting the way that Peko's fighting. That's just a fact. And I think what Aleish has done with Aprilia is exemplary, and I think it's brilliant. And I think him on the Aprilia is brilliant. The problem is, I don't know if he has that sort of ruthless will to win that Peko Banyaya does because Peko will not stop until he gets to the front and he keeps that lead. Whereas Aleish, there are times when I think sort of in the lull of the race, somewhere around the middle of the race, like lap 11, 12, 13, I think there's a point with Aleish where he's almost too happy with where he is and he's not actively trying to get up the leaderboard enough. And I think if he could fix that, then his title charge could start coming back but i think with ever uh, i mean we're about what 
three-fifths of the way through the calendar now. And we're getting to a point where Alicia's not going to be able to claw these points back anymore. The P6s, the P7s, the P8s, they're all great. I mean, it's they're decent finishes. But if you want to be maintaining the title charge, you've got to be in minimum P3, P4, P5. I mean, that's what Fabio Quartararo is doing, and he's hanging on to his championship lead just about. For Alicia, it is starting to slip away, and he's got to get it back soon. Yeah, I mean, you don't know what's the state of his foot. He injured in Silverstone. Maybe this is something uh, which is hindering him. But the strong point to Aleish was always his consistency. He had like yeah. three or four podiums in a row. There was one race in Argentina where he won, but he isn't necessarily the rider to win four or five races. That was never his way to win the championship. Right. And um, he slipped a little bit uh, since the summer break because... Um, he had this incredible race in Aston with all the momentum. Then Fabio had the long lap penalty in Silverstone. Unfortunately, he injured, he injured himself, fought like a dog, and only lost like one point to Fabio. Everything's great. But right now, I mean, you don't know how much it's uh, because of him, because of the bike, or what's the injury, you know? But the reality is it's not where he wants to be right now because he's slowly losing to Fabio. And... He needs to be more consistent and or more consistently on the podium because this is the way to beat Fabio or Peko like over a whole season. Because I don't think he is as talented as those two, but he has a very good bike and he's very uh, experienced. And if you don't use these opportunities where, for example, uh, Fabio had the long lap and the bad uh, rear tire choice in Silverstone because you injure yourself on a high sider in FP4, or Fabio finished second, Peko finished first in Austria, and you are a little bit more uh, down the order, and now once again, the people fighting for the title, I mean, it would have been an amazing opportunity for Aleix if he would have been as good as Maverick to make up some ground uh, of um, to Fabio because he doesn't have to win every race now, you know? But if he could be more consistently on the podium uh, or could have been over the last uh, three races, the championship would have looked or would look very, very differently. And that's like the issue. But yet again, I don't know what's uh, the injury state, but the reality is it is now the way it is. And he needs to be better than Maverick. Like, and Maverick almost won in Silverstone, so he should have been. He should have not injured himself uh, on in Silverstone. Easier said than done. Uh, I suppose he didn't do it on purpose, you know. And if he would have finished on the podium there, he would have made up great, great points to Fabio. Then Austria was simply a bad track for Aprilia. Maverick struggled, Aleix struggled, but then again, he needs to be on the podium, like be there where Jorge Martin was towards the end, you know? And now again in uh, Misano, be on the podium, be behind Peko and Inia, take those points and slowly chip away. And then when maybe the overseas uh, could be a huge opportunity, because let's not forget Fabio and Peko in 2019 were rookies on the bike. And Aleish has been there forever. He's like the oldest rider on the grid now with Dovi retiring. And he needs to use this as an advantage and needs to use this uh, for the overseas races to make up points. And um, it's 
the air is getting thin right now because he's now third in the world championship with over 30 points uh, behind Fabio. It's not that easy if you don't win every race, you know? Peko can do it. Peko can win every race easily because he oh, is yeah. that good and the Ducati is that good. But I would doubt that uh, Elish is able to do it. So he needs to take more advantage of those bad performances by Fabio, you know? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, the two-pronged approach to this for um, Elish is you got to be beating Maverick. If you're not beating Maverick, you're definitely not beating Fabio or Paco because if you can't beat your own teammate, you ain't winning the title. That's just a reality. The second thing is, and it's another excellent point that you made, you got to use your experience as well. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that Alicia Sparrow is now the oldest rider on the MotoGP grid. It's a very strange thought. I mean, I feel old now. Um, but yeah, I mean, whenever you've got these guys like Fabio Pecco, who are 21, 22, 23, you know, really, really young on the grid, the one advantage that you're going to have is that you've been around the block a long time and that you know consistency and that you know how to get the job done. And like you said, especially with the overseas races, I mean, especially Motegi in Japan, which is coming up soon, Races like Japan are going to be huge in determining who wins this title because the Fabio and um Paco haven't been there whilst they're, they've been in the premier class. So races like Japan are going to be a wild card for someone to pick up a win here or there. And that must be the kind of race where Aleish is winning. If he can win the wild card races, he could still be in it. I mean, Aleish Spargo is a world-class rider. I mean, like you said, he's third in the championship standings. You don't get there through luck. Believe me, you don't. He can still do it and he could still pull it out of the bag, but he's got to use his experience and he's got to use those wild card opportunities. Otherwise, it'll be a two horse race again. If you want it to be a three horse race, take advantage of it, Alish. It is still within your hands, but it's starting to slip away. Yeah. Same with Fabio. He can't afford those performances like in Silverstone. And like today, I mean, he had a bad qualifying because of the rain and it's not uh completely unrealistic that it won't rain at least uh, one time during the overseas races you know and if you aren't able let's say it's a qualifying or a race again if you aren't able to capitalize on those conditions even though he was good in the rain in mandalika but those mixed conditions don't uh, seem to be his favorites um if you lose it this way it would be extremely sad you know he had a very, very comfortable lead over Pekko with 91 points after Germany. He fucked it up in Assen. He fucked it up in Silverstone. In Austria, he was good. As good as it gets, very, very, very good performance. But now again in Misano, if he would have, uh, would have been on the front row, maybe. I mean, Pekko had the three-place grid penalty. Maybe he needs to take advantage more of those opportunities, you know, because Fabio is the most talented rider on the grid, in my opinion. He yes, is I agree. So good on the motorcycle. And considering that he rides a Yamaha, which is, uh, if you take him out of the equation, the worst bike on the grid. Because nobody can ride it. Nobody. The only thing that's positive about the Yamaha that Fabio can ride it and uh yeah but that makes it not the worst bike on the grid you know because at least someone can ride it the honda 
would have been a better bike if Mark Marcus still was uh, there, you know, because you could always say, okay, Mark makes it possible. Fabio makes it possible right now. The Honda wasn't considered the worst bike on the grid in 2019, but in 2020, all of a sudden, they're far off uh, the pace, you know? And um, yeah, Fabio, he is still in a very good position because 30 points is a lot, but he can't afford to have those bad performances in a qualifying or like a wrong rear tire choice or something he did in Aston. It's, he can't afford it anymore because the gap is still comfortable enough that he can, because Peko can win every race, of course, but realistically he won't. Because, yeah, yeah to win like 10 races in a row is extremely unlikely in modern name MotoGP. Mark Marcus did it in 2014, but since then it never has been done, you know? And he needs to be at least uh, on the top step of the podium in one or two races to take a little bit more of those points away from Peko and Aleish. But yeah, he's still in a good position. For me, he's still the title favorite. But uh, yeah, over the next few seasons, I would like if we have like not one rider who wins the championship all the time, like we had with uh, Rossi, like we had with uh, Marcus, but more of a, like we had with Lorenzo and Stoner, you know, you had riders like two, three, four riders maybe, um, who are able to win a world championship and they are winning it, but not the same one. Like, let's say Pekka wins it this year, uh, Maverick wins it next year, Inea Bassinini the following year, and there's always like this big title battle, you know, this would be extremely great for MotoGP and it's extremely possible because the field is so close, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one thing MotoGP cannot do is become F1. It just, it cannot do that. Valentino Rossi's dominance worked because he was loved by millions, like 90% of the MotoGP fan base adored Valentino Rossi, myself included, you included. Mark Marquez, love him, hate him, worked really well because half of them loved him, half of them hated him. That domination worked because it, Mark Marquez worked for the same reasons Floyd Mayweather worked in boxing. Some people came up to see him win. Some people showed up because they wanted him to lose and basically injure himself really badly. Now, I think that's a bit of a macabre reason, but some people do. That's just the thing, right, wrong, or indifferent. The problem is we're getting to a point in MotoGP where we can't have that now because I don't know that there's a rider that's charismatic enough to carry out that domination and make it believable for, say, two, three, four, five seasons. What we need, aside from that, are three or four riders who could each split a world title between them in four or five seasons. And that way you get back to the best MotoGP, you get back to everybody wanting to watch every single race, every qualifying session, every free practice session, not those fucking sprint races, but that's a completely different thing entirely. The point is you're right. We need riders who can compete with each other seriously in every single race. Like you said, I mean, it wasn't that long ago we had Casey Stoner, Valentino Rossi, you know, Danny Pedrosa's, these kind of names, four or five star riders who were competing with each other every single weekend. If we can get back to that, if we can get back to that, then MotoGP is in a great position. But the 
we I do agree we the sort of domination of race after race after race it's not sustainable yeah uh, I mean Fabio is uh, according to the MotoGP survey right now the most popular rider on the grid how much do you trust that survey Leo I mean they introduced sprint racing out of it for God's sake you know why I trust it because they openly admitted that the fans don't want sprint races I mean, if if you rig it, how stupid would you be that you uh, that you say, okay, the fans don't want sprint races, even though we introduced them. You know, that showed to me that it's honest. You know. Well, this is Dorna we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but I believe it because Fabio is a, a great personality, and True. with him versus Pecco, you could so well have like this good versus evil because Pecco is, um, yeah, he got caught drunk driving now there was a controversy regarding his uh regarding his helmet with dennis rodman because uh, dennis rodman is convicted to uh, i believe uh, for domestic violence against his wife you know and i mean if you are a fan of his okay cool but if you're a professional rider and you recently got caught drunk driving you can't put this on a helmet because even uh, more now than uh, a couple of years earlier, people are going to find out A and B pointed out. And to me, this was a mistake. I don't personally have a huge problem with it uh, because I don't know much about Dennis Rodman. You know, it's, it's not part of my generation, you know, but yeah, uh, yeah. for example, if someone would uh, wear a Greg Hardy uh, jersey to a MotoGP race, you know, you would be like, yeah, come on, you dickhead. Why do you have to do it? But, and you know, there's those people out there. Someone is going to do that just because of seen yeah. this. Or like Deshaun Watson, all of this shit, you know, you, oh, you, you just don't do it, even though the dude is a good athlete with all the shit that happened off field. But yeah, it was brought to my attention due to uh, people on the internet pointing it out. And uh, yeah, I feel like you can't do it. But he did it. And you could market this good versus evil. Then Peko has to play the evil role better than Jorge Lorenzo. You know, Jorge Lorenzo was the perfect antagonist to Valentino Rossi. And he played it to perfection. And you need like Peko talking shit in the media about... Uh, behaving like a dickhead like everybody wants to see him lose but he's still like he's an he seems like a nice guy you know but he isn't playing this evil rule it's like a very subtle way you know but if you could have like a very good rider like fabio who's always friendly never has any accusations always like the watch accusations come out against Fabio and his life gets destroyed <laughs> yeah the perfect golden boy of MotoGP you know and then have like the antagonist Pekko Banyaya who gets caught drunk driving who talks shit in the media you know this would build a rivalry but everybody's buddies right now you know after Austrian after the Austrian GP race uh, it was everybody was like yeah good job I mean Enea Bastianini versus uh, Pekko Bagnaia will be different next year because Enea Bastianini will want to beat uh, Pekko Bagnaia. He showed it today and he will do it more on the same bike um, because right now you could say, okay, he don't he doesn't risk it to 110% because he doesn't want to take out uh, Pekko and uh, kill his championship. But uh, yeah. This will be a more interesting than Jack Miller in the box. 
But yeah. Um, another one, Dolby retires. And is a little bit a little bit unusual because it's in the middle of the season. Is the Yamaha that shitty that you don't want to uh carry it overseas and race there for six races or four races and now we have to two races in Spain. Is it that bad that you want to retire at home or is there maybe a different reason? Well I'm inclined to think it's because the Yamaha's that crap. I mean, the thing is, this isn't any kind of B-level rider we're talking about here. This is Andrea Davizioso. This is the ma This is the only man who's ever really taken it to prime Mark Marquez, and the man who has been the best rider in the world three years in a row, I think, with the exception of Mark Marquez. So whenever this man's retiring because he'd rather not bring that bike overseas, it's it's very concerning if I'm Yamaha. It really, really is. I mean, I'm sure there's probably a couple of other reasons. I mean, I think Davi's like 35 years old now. I mean, I know he is getting older and MotoGP is going to take more of a toll on him. I completely understand that. But this is a world champion rider. I mean, he's a 125cc world champion. If he's, if he's that unhappy with the bike that he's not willing to see out the season with it, when he's seen out the majority of the season already, alarm bells are ringing, Yamaha. They really, really are. Um, It tells me a lot. It tells me that he would rather retire three-fifths of the way through the season than keep going as a MotoGP rider. I, I think that's problematic. I really do. But um, I truly, truly wish Andrea Davizioso the very best. He's been one of the best riders of the last 10 years, without doubt, in the Premier class. Like I said, some of the races with Marc Marquez, especially Austria 2000 and... Was it 2019? I think it was Austria 2019 on the last corner when he won. I mean, he, he's given us some great, great memories. He really has. And I truly wish him nothing but the best. Yeah. I mean, uh, I believe that Ducati made a mistake in 2018 in letting Jorge Lorenzo go. Personally, I agree. personally, I'm not the biggest fan of his, but after 2018, it all went down with Dovi and Ducati because 2019, he wasn't really competitive uh, towards Marc Marquez because Marc Marquez was such an utterly brilliant rider in this season. 2020 was his chance to win the world championship, but he didn't. I mean, if you would have told everybody like in 2018, after the 2018 season, Marc Marquez won't be there in 2020 and Andrea Dovizioso will be sitting on a factory or even after 2019, will be sitting on a factory Ducati. Everybody will have said, okay, this is Dovi's here to take it, you know, but he didn't. And I feel like it all went downhill a little bit Um with Dovi after getting beaten by Marc Marquez frequently because it it arrived by him that he is not good enough, I believe. And he lost confidence in itself in himself. And I believe Jojo Lorenzo would have uh would have been different, especially in uh, 2019. When he was on grips with the Ducati, he was good. If he would have beaten Marc Marquez is on a different uh, page, but um he would have been very much more competitive than uh, than Dovi. And also in 2020, I mean, Jorge Lorenzo on the Ducati in 2020, why wouldn't he? He has all the experience in the world. He has all the pace in the world. And when you give him like 
two races in Jerez, when you give him like two races here, two races there, you know, he's going to take it. I believe it's it was a mistake to promote Petrucci. They wanted to show, uh, yeah, we are taking care of our Pramac riders. But yeah, they should have just kept uh, him. But it is what it is. Dovi uh, leaves a great legacy. Uh, I want to thank him personally for everything he did because it was an amazing time when he was on the Ducati. He was beating Mark Marquez. Those were so, so incredibly good races. And we aren't seeing it anymore, you know? We had like a glimpse of it with Peko and... Uh, and Marquez last year, but it was just different, you know, because it was this big superstar Mark Marquez being wrestled down in uh, one uh, in a one versus one battle in the last lap by Dovizioso, who on paper is not as talented and shouldn't be there, you know, because I mean he is he's very very good, but he wasn't supposed to beat Mark Marquez, you know, but he did. And this was amazing. And uh, yeah, it's sad that it ended this way. I believe it would have been better if he just called it quits after 2020. But, you know, afterwards, uh, you're always uh, smarter. That's the beauty of hindsight. Um, as Robert Whittaker said. <laughs> and uh, Shout out Bobby Knuckles. Yeah. The last uh, thing I would like to discuss uh, is the whole KTM disaster. Oh. because uh yeah to um to get everything concluded uh there was an interview by Simon Crafer uh with Pete Byra at the beginning of FP3 everybody who hasn't listened to this interview I uh, recorded it and posted it on the Bad Moto GP podcast Instagram it's an 8 minute video, uh, 8 minute interview it's really long but it's such a great uh interview i would highly recommend to listen to and first of all um pete byra said that the accusations that ktm told remy he wasn't professional enough what remy told the media uh isn't true you know i don't know who told it remy i don't know if pete byra is uh saying the truth but the way he he conducted himself in this interview was a little bit telling that he was not completely confident in what he said. You know, it's like when someone tells 100% truth um, and is accustomed to being interviewed. I mean, I could, I could imagine that, that if someone came up to a random person on the street and interview him, it's a little bit of a strange situation. You would stutter. It's not, you're not, but the head of motorsports from KTM, he's accustomed to that. He had documentaries filmed about him. He was a motorcycle racer himself and he knows how to do this stuff. And then to stutter and to behave like this, it was almost embarrassing because at the end, we just want to know the truth. And if you can't tell the truth and stutter, it tells more than the truth, you know? And um, yeah, it's obviously, it's incredibly sad for Remy because he has half a season. He said in the interview, Pete Barra said that they didn't pick up his option in June. I can't remember which race June was, but uh, it wasn't... Uh, I believe Assen is the last weekend in June. It could have been Assen. Yeah, it could have been Assen. So basically, you had Remy getting a little bit 
of an advantage over Rowell and you could see um, he's learning the MotoGP bike. He had a very good race in Catalonia for like KTM rookie standards, very good race. It's not like he was fighting for the podium. Um, but yeah, still under those uh, conditions that he has to ride uh, KTM. Um, it was a good race, you know? And remember at the beginning of the season, there were quotes like, uh, yeah, I just can't go out there and buy a Ducati from Remy. He said uh, stuff like in Le Mans where uh, he said, yeah, I believe, oh, I would like to uh, have a thunderstorm and not race at all. And those are harsh words towards your employer. But Simon pointed out that Yamaha publicly apologized to all their riders in Austria because they weren't able to develop a good bike. Honda is constantly in the um, in the fire of Mark Marcus, who came out publicly and said, like, if uh, Honda doesn't build a competitive bike, then, you know, yada, yada, yada. He didn't elaborate on it, but I guess everybody knows what he means. And, of course, Fabio and uh, Mark Marcus are a different caliber of riders than Remy is at the moment. Uh, but still you have to live with all the criticism and Pete Barra already said, you know, it's the reality. Uh, you have to deal with it. And um, Simon Krefer basically insulted KTM. The whole interview, it was hilarious where he asked if uh, Stefan Pira, the, I believe he's the CEO of KTM is uh, that thin skinned that uh, he, uh, throw, he fires a rider because of uh, critique at, at the bike. It, absolutely genius thank you simon Krefer. so yeah and pete byra elaborated and basically said yeah we want people there who believe in the project so you could read between the lines that uh with all the information that we have that supposedly ktm got the um yeah got the opinion of remy that he didn't want to be there that he didn't want to that he didn't believe ktm would be a manufacturer who can fix uh, things in the future and then just to get uh, somewhere else. And I heard stuff that uh, there was a little bit of conversations with RNF. I mean, people were telling me like that Rosalind was like, yeah, you could potentially have a place and then, oh no, sorry, we take role, you know? So apparently there was this. And um, which is publicly known that uh, Paco Sanchez, Remy's manager, basically hates KTM. Uh, Wayne Gardner had a very interesting tweet uh, where he uh, where he um, called Paco Sanchez like a clown and basically accused him of ruining Remy's career. I don't want to judge this because I assume that Wayne Gardner could have done more for Remy than uh, he did. But yeah, it is what it is. Uh, those are all relationships I don't know enough about to judge. And this is the personal stuff. I don't want to call like Wayne a bad father or whatever. That's between them. But um, Pete Bayra came out and said MotoGP managers are basically the worst thing since COVID, which is a harsh Thing to say considering that like six million people died and including like Fausto Grisini. Um, but yeah, with all of this, I mean the puzzle is kind of put together. 
behind the reason, but still Remy is the best rider to come out of this KTM project because he won the world championship, something Brad B or like the Moto2 world championship, something Brad Binder wasn't able to do, Miguel Oliveira wasn't able to do, uh, Jorge Martin wasn't able to do, you know, he did it. And Simon also pointed out that the current Moto2 riders in similar conditions are like 9 to 15 seconds slower over a race distance than what Remy and Raul did. And they're replacing him with a rookie who has to learn the MotoGP bike on two free practice sessions, a qualifying, a sprint race, and a real race. And think this would be better for the MotoGP project than Remy, who apparently doesn't believe uh, in the project, but still he won't be cruising at the back and saying, fuck you, you know, he's still, it's still his career and he will still do the best, you know. Uh, but yeah, to me, it's a huge embarrassing for KTM, embarrassment for KTM. And uh, I feel very sorry for, Maverick, uh, for uh, Remy because it's like, also the most unfortunate situation with the Suzuki exit, because let's assume Suzuki stays in MotoGP, the LCR seat would have been open, then uh, yeah, I don't know what would have happened with Repsol, so maybe there would have been another opening, all of this, maybe Paul would have stayed and KTM basically had no other choice, but yeah, still it was very very unfortunate from the beginning on. And uh, yeah, I feel very sad for him. I th I think that uh, KTM is doing a huge mistake because they aren't... I mean, Paul is a very good choice of rider because he knows the bike, he knows the team, he has very much uh, developed this bike into a race-winning bike that's basically his work. And uh, there's still a seat left and... In my opinion, there's no better man for the seat than Remy because he A, is an exceptional rider. He B, knows the bike, knows the team and uh, gets more, he understands more. And now you demoralized him so much that he publicly came out and all of this was carried out by Remy, you know? And um, yeah, so you basically ruined the half of the season now for Remy because if you don't feel happy at your workplace, if you don't feel wanted, you know, it's very difficult to be a high performer in this environment. And you saw today, I don't know what happened with Remy. I just know he had a good start uh, at the on the broadcast. You could see it. I haven't talked to him about it. Uh, I don't know what happened, but he got overtaken at the end by Jack Miller, who crashed like in the first few laps, which isn't a good sign. And yeah, Raul did a pretty good job. He finished in the points. But uh, yeah, it's basically KTM destroyed his MotoGP career. They destroyed the last half of the season and they're potentially destroying their own future with this move because Raul Fernandez ain't going to cut it. There's nothing personal against... Uh, against Augusto Fernandez. But with those limited time of practice, he simply won't be good on this shitbox, you know? Um, but yeah, this is the state. I think maybe you have some thoughts there, but I would like to move on. Like, what's next for Remy? 
Yeah, um, I'll just start off by saying that this is this is an unmitigated disaster for KTM, the way they've handled this. This has been, it, it's kind of been like a bit of a poisonous relationship from the beginning almost, I would say. I mean, you have Raul Fernandez, who never wanted to be there. We know that he wanted to go to Yamaha. KTM exercised their contractual option to bring him into MotoGP essentially against his will he'd have rather have spent another year in moto 2 than go to yamaha that tells you all you need to know you have miguel Oliveira, who's so pissed off at ktm that he's leaving to go to rnf alongside raul fernandez you have brad bender who's kind of happy-go-lucky he'll stay there and be a stable force but he can't be happy either and then we come to remy gardner the moto the reigning moto 2 world champion my God, how badly has this been handled? I can't even say. Um, it's just been terribly, terribly mismanaged by KTM. I would assume the buck stops with Pitt Byer because he's the director of motorsports for the KTM MotoGP division. But the, this relationship with Remy, I mean, look, you know Remy Gardner much better than I do. I've never had the pleasure of speaking with the guy. I know you have something of a friendship with him in a way. I cannot imagine Remy Gardner is a difficult guy to get along with. I, it just This does not compute to me that he's a hard guy to get along with. You give him what he needs to get the job done, he's going to go out and do it. To give him half a season on a shitbox MotoGP bike and expect him to be in like the top 10, I mean, where's your head at, KTM? I mean, you really need to get your heads out of your arses here. Expecting Raul and Remy to be where you expect them to be is utterly ridiculous. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't. And, you know, the way that this has been mismanaged is diabolical, Leo. It really is. There's no other word for it. I mean, Remy Gardner, Raul, I understand letting go. Raul didn't want to be there. Raul's always made it clear he did not want to move up into MotoGP with KTM. He wanted to wait, go to Yamaha, all that good stuff. What makes this worse with Remy is that Remy's always acted in good faith, as far as I can see. He agreed to go up into MotoGP with KTM. He's always tried his best. He was carrying a rib injury whilst trying to get used to the bike. And he's been sort of behind the step from the very beginning. And to sack him off halfway into the season, I mean, what's that telling people? Now you've got a world you've got a world championship rider who's not gonna want to ride to the best of his ability because he has no incentive to. You're telling future riders that you can be sacked off as well if you don't do this. And quite frankly, KTM's man management is atrocious. It just is. I mean, even think about it from a marketing perspective. You've Wayne Gardner's son. You have a guy from Australia, big motorbike country, you know, very, very passionate fans. If you worked with Remy, the opportunities this would have presented basically right themselves. Now, I know they're replacing him with Jack Miller. I think that's a very good signing, but it doesn't negate the point. The The unprofessionalism of KTM has been shocking. It really, really has. I mean, Simon Crayfar, brilliant interview, by the way. Big respect to Simon. You know, to be so thin-skinned and to be so unable to take valid criticism that you get rid of Remy Gardner over it, I think it's very poor, Leo. I think it's really, really, really poor. 
And the other thing that I'll say is this, because I know we got to move on to some other stuff. You make a really good point about Remy being very vocal about his employers. And I understand that. MotoGP is not your standard employer-employee relationship. You are on a two-weighted machine that can kill you if it's not made properly and if it's not tailor-made to what you need. Remy Gardner has spent this entire season on a substandard bike trying to do his best on that bike. He could go out in any race and get paralyzed on that bike, and that's the end of his career and the end of his livelihood. If you expect him to just be a choir boy and say, oh, well, I'm actually pretty happy with it. You know, we're doing good. We're going to try our best. You know, well, I can't. that's not Remy. Remy's going to be honest. He's going to be vocal. If it's a piece of shit, he's going to call it a piece of shit. And that's exactly what he did. Quite frankly, I think this is extremely poor from KTM. And I think it sends such a bad message for the coming seasons. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really about Remy's performance. They said they were happy with his performance. They know that the bike is shit. They don't expect him to be on a level where Brad Binder is. But uh, it was all about the attitude, apparently. But when you have a rookie coming into a team and you basically give him the... He comes there with all the motivation in the world. He wants to be there. He's just came off a world championship, you know? And Remy personally is like the nicest human being you will ever see. Um, a little story there. When I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but uh, after the podcast, he invited us to uh, Rocky's Rocco's Ranch and uh, to join uh, him there while motocross training. I met Paul there, uh, also a very nice human being. And um, yeah, this was the day where Remy broke his wrist uh, before the Malaysian test. It was at the beginning of January. And um, yeah, he came back, was extremely pissed off because he just broken his hand and he already knew it. But uh, like his second thought was, oh, I'm so sorry. I ruined your experience here. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he cared so much about me and my girlfriend in this instant where he apologized to us where we're like bro you just broke your wrist go to the fucking hospital it's not about us right now you know but he made it and also in uh, austria last year we um never met before he just uh he was racing in moto 2 fighting for the title and i was there so and it was the double header and i was there for the whole week so i texted him hey do you have some free time over the week so maybe we could catch up he's like yeah i would love to but uh, over the week it hadn't really played out because he went to matikhofen there and there was all of this stuff that he moves up to moto gp so apparently the week was pretty busy and uh, then we met before the uh, Moto3 race after the Moto2 and MotoGP warm-up. He came over, we talked a little bit, uh, this was last year, and then he went back and had the race, you know. He went back when the Moto3 race started, so it was like one and a half hours before his race. I never expected him to do it because you. I'm like, bro, it's your work right now. Do do all the preparation you need. But he was he wanted to take this time, and I extremely appreciate it. And the same this year, um, I yeah, I texted him a little bit uh, because of merch, and uh, the reason behind it is that uh, the merch is shipped from Australia, and if you ship it from Australia to to Europe, you have like. 35 euros in shipping fees alone 
So I yeah. texted him. I'm like, hey, this is the situation. Uh, I would love to have some, but um, I would uh, I wouldn't want to pay uh, the price of a T-shirt just for fees. And he was like, yeah, I completely understand. I'll look what I have at home. I'm like, yeah, sure. I will give it to you just in cash, you know, because I don't want to expect him that he gifts it to me. I just want, I still want to support him even uh, with the money, you know? Um, and he was like, no, I don't need nothing. All of your memes are, uh, are payment enough. So I brought him, I brought him a little bit of German beer and nice. to thank him but he didn't want anything for it and then we met before the moto gp race it was the same situation as last year in austria where he and uh, his girlfriend uh, step uh, stopped by before the moto 3 race started uh, he had uh, two t-shirts and a hat for me and um yeah i made it onto on tv with it and uh, it was like Later, I found out uh, that on Saturday, uh, the whole thing that KTM told him, hey, we ain't going to resign you, you're too unprofessional, yada, yada. This was on Saturday, apparently. And he still took his time to meet me. He could have said, no, I have no time. And I would completely understand. But he is such a friendly and nice dude. Uh, it's so amazing. And personally, he is amazing to work with because he's super chill he doesn't make uh, things complicated he's very educated in the things he says and uh, in the thing and the way he behaves you know he knows what he's doing he's not stupid remy's a g man shout yeah. out remy Gardner. yeah he's the nicest uh, human being and um also like miguel Oliveira, i met him at the airport in uh, portugal yeah. And he was super nice to talk to. And later on, I uh, heard stories that he's a pain in the ass to deal with in the paddock. Um, yeah, you know, so uh, I don't know if that necessarily translates into a work environment. But uh, personally, Remy's the best. And uh, yeah, I would assume pure speculation that when you're a Moto2 champ, you come into a new team, you want to do your best. And when you get the feeling from your employee, it's like a kid-parent uh, relationship. If the kid don't uh, doesn't want to uh, disappoint the parents or annoy them, they want to do their best. But if there is constantly like a toxic way of working in this instant, then you quickly demoralize one. You know, because Remy wanted to be there. It was Remy's dream to be MotoGP rider and all of this. And then within like a couple of months, you give him such a shitty feeling about uh, the work environment this, this, uh, that he doesn't believe into in the project and doesn't believe that KTM uh, will fix it. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty telling. And um, yeah, regarding this one. And uh, the next one is what's next for him right now. And I thought about it because there are realistically two options, which is uh, go to World Superbike, like Icalikwona did. Another prime example of a career, a MotoGP career ruined by KTM. Yeah. And uh, he could go back to Moto2. And this basically, like those are the most realistic uh, options for him. Uh, he could also retire and uh, go drifting in Andorra, but I doubt it. He can do it in 10 years or whatever. Um, but yeah, 
he uh, has those two options, in my opinion. And to me, it comes down what he wants. Does he want to go a step back and go back to Moto2, prove himself there again, because he has the abilities to do it. He can win the world championship again easily. If right now the people are 15 seconds slower in a race than he was last year, and then go to a real manufacturer and prove everybody wrong in MotoGP, I believe it's, or I can assume, it's very, very difficult to uh, to do this from a mental state, you know. But he could do it if he wants to. Or the other one is go to Superbike, have like a completely new beginning and just prove yourself there. Those yeah, are, I mean, in my opinion, the two options. Yeah, I mean, look, they're both very good options. Um, and I think Remy would do brilliantly with both of them. Um, I think with World Superbike, very good option, very good championship. But I think it's a step down for Remy. And I don't think he deserves a demotion. I think he's more than worthy of staying in the World Championship stage in Grand Prix racing. That's, of course, my opinion. I it's it's just unfortunate with the premier class thing that Suzuki are leaving basically because like you said it would have given him the perfect fallback but Moto2 could work it could by all means I don't think it would be a point of him proving himself because he's already a world champion he he owes nobody anything he is a world champion and nothing and nobody can ever take that away from him especially a negative KTM experience um both options are very valid i would actually love to hear remy's thoughts on this one day because i'd love to see where he's at psychologically with this um i mean of course that's probably a long time away but it's it's interesting it really is i mean i think he would do brilliantly in world superbike i think his riding style suits it very well um in terms of manufacture and stuff, I think that's a different discussion, but I think he'd do really good there. Moto2 could work as well. Take another year or two there, come back up again, and show KTM how wrong they are for how they've treated him. Either way, Remy Gardner will land on his feet, whatever direction he chooses. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you could compare it with uh, Sam Lowe's, because Sam Very Lowe's true. was in a similar situation, but Sam Lowe's never was as good as Remy was in Moto2. Agreed. Sam Lowe's was like a potential title contender, but never really emerged before he went to Moto, Moto GP in whatever, what was it, 2017? Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah, it's a while ago. But he came back and uh, did well in Moto 2. He almost won the title in 2020. And you could argue that he reached basically the same level he reached before. Yeah. Tom, Tom Lutti, a different situation. He was very, very long in Moto2 and almost... He was kind of a title contender, but kind of wasn't, you know? Then he got the shot in uh, MotoGP with the shitty bike, the Honda in this instant, went back. His first season with Intact was okay. And after that, he... Yeah, he was shit. And uh, he retired. Yeah, it is what it is, you know? Yeah, it but, is what it is. We keep it real. <laughs> yeah, but... um. With this, I want to point out that it's entirely possible to go down to Moto2 and be as good as you were. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This, Especially this if you're a writer of Remy's quality, yeah. of course. And look at it this way. If Remy at his peak at Red Bull KTM IO, where everything was perfect, was 15 seconds faster than the guys right now, then if he comes back and is at 
like he's not at 100% and it's just 10 seconds slower over a race distance, he's still five seconds faster than everybody else. You know, it's it just comes down to which team. And Aki Ayo seemed to be the perfect match for him because he wasn't, uh, he was developing in a good way but he wasn't really a title contender everywhere before like he went uh, to tech three before which was a disaster because the yeah. mistral could uh yeah could be um a piece of shit sometimes sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't then he went to stop and go uh, where he constantly progressed and won a race at the end but it wasn't like he was competing for championships and then when he went to aki ayu everything switched and he was there Every race weekend. And he had an excellent working relationship with Aki Ayo yeah. as well, which yeah. was a big thing. Yeah. So the big, big question is would Aki Ayo, or I believe Aki Ayo personally would take him back, but he's tied with KTM if Red Bull KTM Ayo is allowed to take Remy Gardner back. This would be the big question. And I would tend to say no because KTM has a say in who they sign uh, at Ayo. And uh, I believe they would prefer to bring like uh, Raume Masia maybe into the Moto2 team or like develop another, so yeah, a veteran like they did with Remy, like they did with Augusto, bring them into the uh, team. I could see that KTM once doesn't want to go uh, with the uh, with Remy again, even though they had great success just because of like the MotoGP season. But yeah. Could have been different. Maybe Aki Ayo says I want Remy, and Remy and Pedro would be my absolute dream team. I would love oh, it. Come I would, on! I would buy Pedro. I would sponsor the team and be at every race in Europe. Uh, would be amazing. But um, I see this as unlikely. What I heard, which isn't confirmed by every by anything, um, is Valentino Rossi. That uh, there's a space uh, left uh, alongside Celestino Vietti. Could be possible, but I don't really see it because I feel like Valentino Rossi is more of a more of a pro Italian. Yeah, yeah. And maybe maybe he doesn't want to get rid of Nicolo Antonelli after just one season. Maybe he wants to give him more time, you know. Uh, and completely fair because it would be a little bit unfair to throw him out immediately unless he wants out, you know. Um, then the uh, Yamaha Master Camp team could be a possibility, but also there, I don't know how they how committed they are to keep Manuel Gonzalez, but I believe he will be there for next season. Just mm. again, all speculation. I have nothing confirmed right now that uh, you won't know as well. Um. I heard that Fermin Aldegier is heading there and uh, Dennis Ernschi will go to speed up, which is a little bit confusing to me because as far as I'm concerned, Fermin Aldegier signed a three-year contract with, uh, with here, speed up. And I don't see a reason why they wouldn't, would let him go. Then, um, then you have, uh, I mean, Pons could be a possibility alongside Aaron Canet. But I don't know how they stand with Jorge Navarro because he's only there for one reason, for one season too. And yeah, back to the Yamaha, what I want to add, you would have the direct uh, connection with the Yamaha MotoGP team. 
because this okay. is the reason this team exists. They want to develop talent and I can assume Yamaha will have a customer team in the future, but then again, you will be stuck with a shit box. Um, yeah, Mark VDS could be a possibility when they want to, or if they want to get uh, rid of Sam Lowe's, because I don't see them getting rid of Tony Abolino. And yeah, I mean, at Intech, there's a place free. Intech is a solid team, uh, but I would say like you want to be at a top tier team, which is Akiayo, obviously. Valentino Rossi is a very good team. Then uh, the Master Camp team, I believe that Yamaha uh, is is doing a good job there. Um, Mark VDS, obviously. Uh, Pons is a very good team. But, you know, stuff like Stop and Go, I don't really see it, you know. You, you want a good team around you. And I believe that if you have it, I mean, Red and Ayo would be the perfect team. But I see... Those teams could be uh, a possibility for Remy, but Moto2 for next year is a huge wildcard because nobody knows what the fuck is going on. And nobody really cares. Everybody cares uh, about MotoGP and what happens in Moto2 isn't even discussed. Um, so yeah, those would be my options. And with Superbike, I have to be honest, I don't know shit about fuck when it comes to Superbike. <laughs> I don't know what the contracts are. I don't know anything. I mean, there could be like a test rider role. Maybe a new manufacturer wants to join MotoGP in 2024. Dorna has allegedly said something like this, but I don't see who it would be because this is the next rabbit hole to go down. Um, With BMW, unlikely to because they don't want to commit to MotoGP. And Kawasaki openly saying we are stacking to Superbike. Um, so those two basically are unrealistic. And apart from that, I could only see uh, Triumph and MV Augusta. And I don't really see them developing a MotoGP bike. Because basically the funding of uh, a MotoGP project is too huge for Suzuki. So why would Triumph do it? I don't know what their revenue is. I don't know nothing. Um, but yeah, so it could be a possibility if hypothetically, let's say BMW changes their mind and says, okay, we want to enter MotoGP in 2024 to be like a development rider, a test rider, and then enter the MotoGP product. But this is more of a long shot, you know? So yeah, those would be my uh, suggest suggestions. But it comes down to what Remy wants, what makes him happy, because at the end of the day, this is the most important thing. And if he wants to go back to MotoGP, Moto2 is the way. And he, if he wants to head the fuck out of this uh, paddock and live a easier life, I would say at least travel-wise, it's easier, less stressful, with less media pressure, then go towards Superbike. Um, but yeah. First of all, that is our new t-shirt for the podcast. I don't know shit about fuck. That is the greatest thing I've ever heard. We got to make that happen one day. Um, as for Remy, I mean, look, Remy's not going to be short of options. You know, I was devastated to hear how this had panned out and how he'd been treated. Obviously, Remy is very much on par with our Lord and Savior, Pitley and Pedro Acosta. And if the same thing had happened to Pedro, I'd be equally as disappointed. But what we've got to remember here is that Remy won't be short of options, whichever avenue he chooses. I do think if I'm Remy Gardner, obviously I'm not. Um, but if I was, 
I would really try and angle to go back to the IO team. I know there's obstacles. I do understand that. But think of the success that he achieved. I mean, not only are you working with the next big young thing in Pedro Acosta, you have a brilliant relationship with the manager, Aki Ayo. You have a bike that you love that you know will work exactly the way you want. You have the chance to win a couple more titles in Moto2 as well, because I think if you drop Remy in there, he's probably the best rider in that championship. You don't have Raul Fernandez moaning at every single fucking turn as well. I think it makes a lot of sense. I really do. KTM get him off their hands in the Premier class. Aki Ayo gets one of his favorite riders back. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, regarding KTM, there's a very uh, interesting uh, school of thought. When they promote Augusto Fernandez to uh, MotoGP, they have next year Jack Miller over a two-year contract. Brad Binder is signed until 2024 as well, as, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Paul, nobody knows if it's a one-year deal or a two-year deal. Probably two. Pro let's, you could argue both ways. But um, then they have Augusto Fernandez on a one-year deal. What do you do when Pedro uh, wins the championship next season? Mm. The likeliness of sacking Augusto Fernandez again after just one season is pretty high. Unless something happens with Paul, but when you, if you bring Paul back as like your development rider, like like Zarco is for Ducati, and you want to keep him there to develop the bike because he he's he has been there for a long time, you won't get rid of him after one year, uh, unless unless something really crazy happens, you know. So, I mean, KTM sacking Augusto Fernandez. I know this is a little bit of a long shot right now to discuss 2024 because a lot can happen. But uh, yeah, let's say Pedro wins the championship. Let's say Augusto Fernandez doesn't do well as a rookie, as nobody, to no fault of his own, with two free practice sessions and uh, all the races and this shitbox, uh, you are almost destined to fail. Yeah. Who says they that they won't sack him for Pedro? Or they're going to lose Pedro to a different manufacturer? Because if I was Pedro, I wouldn't sign there. Well, if I'm Pedro and I want to go up into the Premier class, I'm eyeing Honda. That's probably where my um, perspective's at. And the thing is, with this actually, this is just my angle, but I do think it's very interesting. And it does involve Mark Marquez. Um, obviously, Juan Mir has been confirmed to HRC on, I think, a two-year deal through to 2024. Mark Marquez has said, and he came out in the media and said this, confirming his return, the next big injury will finish him, basically, because he's not going to put himself through another arm surgery. Assuming Mark Marquez crashes again, which, let's be honest, he's going to crash again. If he has a big enough crash and he can't do it anymore... I think you see Pedro Acosta at HRC, and I think that's the way this probably works out. I mean, it's not beyond KTM to sack Augusto Fernandez for him. In fact, I think that's very likely, but I think Pedro Acosta's heads elsewhere, and that's the angle he's looking at. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, they won't sack Mark Marquez for Pedro because money, you know. Oh, they won't sack him. Absolutely. Yeah. It'll only happen if Mark walks, yeah. not if HRC do. Yeah. So let's say HRC keeps Marcus because he's healthy. And let's say they still want Pedro. They would have to give him the LCR seat. Uh, 
I don't know if Alex Rins has a two-year contract or one-year contract. But also, which is really interesting, is Yamaha, because Frankie's contract uh, will run out after next year. And if also a wildcard could be Jorge Martin to Yamaha. I don't know. I don't know if he has a two-year contract with Ducati, but, but I believe he's pissed off that he won't get the factory seat there. But yeah, this is now getting into a real speculation because uh, we don't know shit about fuck. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what I wanted to say, and uh, you brought the next topic up with Mark Marcus, is KTM sacking Augusto Fernandez isn't unlikely. And regarding Mark Marcus, uh, it's... Very surprising, positively surprising that he will be testing the Honda because it's basically a sign, okay, let's see if the MotoGP bike works and if it works, I will do the races now. Yeah, it's it's very, very interesting. I mean, I didn't think Mark would race again this season, period. Um, I still don't think he should. But he's back, that's his decision, and he'll do that either way. The Misano test is going to be big, because it's going to determine where Mark's at, and it's going to determine where the bike's at. I mean, this is the thing with Mark Marquez. I mean, he is so badly damaged that he's going to have to consider whether trying to fix this bike's even worth it in the end, because his health has suffered so badly that he might not be in any condition. You know, again, it depends entirely on how Mark looks on that bike, which unfortunately we won't see because Dorna don't allow cameras in for the testing, which sucks, but it would be cool to see. The problem is, is that Mark has to assess where he's at. And my best guess would be is that Mark Marquez races the rest of the season, takes the off season and probably decides then if he, if he's physically able to continue. I mean, it, it was very interesting for me in his press conference when he mentioned his grandfather asking him to walk away. Um, you know, this is the first time I've ever heard Mark Marquez seriously consider walking away from all of this. And it isn't even under his own steam. It's because someone else has asked him to that's obviously very close to him. It, Mark is going to learn a lot from this test and he's going to learn whether it's worth keeping going. It's really as simple as that. But I'm very intrigued to see how he looks on the bike. I mean, obviously, the RC213V is Mark's bike. No one else can ride it. We know this. I'm intrigued to see what happens either way. That's all I'll say. Yeah, I mean, and Honda is in a pretty miserable situation. I said it a couple of times. If, okay, not if. Um, Jean Mir will ride for Repsol next year. Alex Rins will ride for LCR next year. Those are two new riders. Then there's still the speculation if Ayogura moves up or not. Nobody knows. There are rumors that it's pretty much a done deal behind closed doors. There are other people who say Ayogura doesn't want to move up. Uh, I wouldn't uh, fault him if he wants to stay in Moto2 uh, because the Honda is, again, an absolute shitbox. Uh, so Honda is in a potential situation where there are three new riders to a team and Mark Marcus who hasn't raced the 2022 season. So the necessity of Mark Marcus coming back and testing the bike at the Misano GP, which isn't really uh, 
which isn't really a test if the bike works. It's a test if Mark Marcus works. And if he is able to ride it, let's say he's 90%, let's say, say he's 85%, like somewhere there is the line Mark Marcus has to be, then the necessity to, for him to ride the bike in order to develop him or develop it for next season is so big that he will do it and he's basically forced to do it by Honda, I would assume. Um, you don't know the reasons behind the manager split. Maybe there are some things going behind closed doors nobody talks about. I mean, credit to Marcus. He always uh, had a talent for keeping personal stuff personal. It yes. wasn't like that there were rumors or people uh, snitching or whatever. Um, but yeah, so it's basically a necessity for Marcus to come back as soon as possible, even if he's not ready, which holds a huge risk because if he high sights once again, uh, like he did in Indonesia, for example, then uh, it could be game over. And the more healthy you are, the less likely you are to get injured. But the longer you wait, the less likely it is that you are competitive in next year because the bike is still a piece of shit you know and once again this isn't mark marcus bike mark marcus never wanted to have this bike he wanted to have the 2020 bike because this was his bike and they changed the whole philo uh, the whole philosophy of the bike because basically of paul and paul isn't there anymore and they changed the balance of the thing they changed everything and marcus is still the only one who can ride it but the bike has no front feeling at all. And I wouldn't be surprised if they just switch back to the 2021 model or the 2020 model and say, okay, Marcus, have fun with it. You're basically the only one. I don't know if they are allowed to do it, but let's say hypothetically they are. Why wouldn't they do it? I mean, um, if you put one X, uh, all of your eggs in one basket, do it... Uh, to 100%. But yeah, that's a pretty miserable situation. And let's be honest, MotoGP is better with Mark Marquez. Either you like him or you don't, but it's better with him. And um, yeah, but it's it holds a huge risk. I'm not his doctor, I don't know, but from a gut feeling, I would say wait until the end of the season. But from Honda's, Honda's perspective, I could totally understand why you maybe push him to go back on a bike. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those arguments where you can very clearly see both sides of the coin. Um, if it were any other rider, you would let him wait out the rest of the season because of the damage that's been done. The problem is that it's not just any other rider. It's Mark Marquez, and he's a supernatural talent, and he's the only one who holds the keys to being able to ride that bike properly. That's just a fact. The problem is, is that Honda are in the exact same situation as when they recruited Paul Espargaro, except now they have Joan Mir and Alex Rins. The question that you now have is, do you trust the new rider you've brought in and go for longevity, or do you go balls to the wall with all your eggs in one basket and just throw it at Marquez and let him try and do it? The problem is that Mark Marquez is a far, far better rider than Joan Mayer. There's no debate about that. He's a superhuman talent. The problem is one more uh, crash is going to be the kill switch. That's it. It'll be him done. And then you leave Joan Mayer with a bike that he can't ride. So realistically, 
Honda are in the same situation they were this time last season where they have to make a tough decision because you cannot split the bike in half and make 50, 50% for Marquez and 50% for Juan Mir. That's not how motorcycles work. It's not how cars work. You've, you've either got to develop it to one or you've got to develop it to the other. And that, that's what this Mizano test is going to decide because even if Mark Marquez is 70% fit, Honda are going to build the bike around Marquez and they're going to do what they did with Paul and they're going to neglect Mir's input and they're going to neglect Rins's input from LCR and they're going to basically stick them with a bike that they're not going to be able to ride. Like I said, problem is if anything happens to Marquez, you're a dead duck and you're basically not going to score any points any major points the rest of 2024 so it kind of depends on where you're at really and um, like i'm not hrc thank god uh, i'm not mark marquez thank god and i'm not mark marquez's doctor also thank god but a lot of people have got a lot of tough decisions leo and they're gonna have to decide what approach they take uh it didn't work so great last time will they stick or will they twist I mean, breaking news, Marc Marquez is still the leading Honda in the championship. That's all you need to know. And um, I heard that uh, Jean Mir's crew chief is basically very, very optimistic about the future at Repsol. Frankie? Jean Mir's crew chief? Yeah, Frankie Carcetti. I don't know his name. Yeah, but I haven't heard it from him. I heard it from other people who apparently spoke to him or they have heard it from other people as well i don't know um yeah once again take it with a pinch of salt um but i don't really see it the honda is a piece of shit and it's a bitch to ride because it's a dangerous piece of shit i mean paul espargaro had two good races on the thing in misano last year when he finished second and let's be honest, he only finished second because everybody ahead crashed. Um, but still, he finished second. And he finished uh, third in here, in Qatar. Qatar. Yeah. Uh, apart from that, the thing is a bitch to ride. Alex Marquez had a second place. Let's only count dry races for a second. Had a second place in uh, Aragon in 2020 as a rookie after that he basically had like a top five in Portimao but he never achieved anything significant Takanakagami his career highlight would be leading an FP1 session um Jorge Lorenzo uh, ended his yeah he ended his career on the on the thing as soon as Mark Marquez arrived Dani Pedrosa was basically declining on the bike because Honda clearly developed the bike for uh, Mark Marquez and not for him anymore. Um, and yeah, Cal Crutchlow was kind of successful on the thing. I believe when you take out um, when you take out uh, Alex, uh, Mark Marquez, I don't know if Cal Crutchlow or Danny Pedrosa were more successful on the Honda since like 2014, 2015, when you take like the years where Mark Marcus developed the bike, because 2013, obviously it wasn't his bike, 2014 more, and you could argue like since 2015 was a bit of a shit show for Honda, um, because they only finished uh, third with him. 
And but yeah, you could argue like 2016 was basically back the year where Honda uh, developed the bike fully for Mark Marcus. Um, and it was a good bike for Mark Marcus, you know, in 2015 shit 2014 was a good year but you could argue that there's still a little bit of Danny Pedrosa influences in the spike but yeah since 2016 who's the most successful rider on a Honda when you take out Mark Marcus could be Cal Crutchlow probably is Cal Crutchlow yeah but Danny Gee. Pedrosa didn't won in 2018 did he win in 2017 or 2016 like one or two races maybe but same as Cal Crutchlow, but I don't know how his points are. This would be interesting to know. I'll basically uh, put an Excel sheet up tonight. Yeah. No, Imagine but... Crutchlow is more successful than Danny Pedrosa. Oh my yeah. god. I mean, over his career, obviously not, because Danny Pedrosa had huge success with Honda. Uh, oh yeah, but even with Honda, I mean, that would still be... Uh, it's a very interesting read, actually. Yeah. I mean, you, you would have to say, like, since 2015 or since 2016, when did Cal Crutchlow go to Honda? It was... 2015 right because 2014 he was on the ducati that's and right yeah it was not the best experience for him so 2015 he went to lcr i believe and stayed there until until 2019 i'm just gonna have a look here yeah. and see ladies and gentlemen yeah i mean i could i could see this uh as possible 2015 to 2019 because 2020 he wasn't racing or wasn't he no or was he uh, yeah he joined lcr in 2015 yeah and the uh, 2020 um alex marcus was at repsol takaka nakagami was at lcr and the second lcr seed must have been cal crutchlow i can't remember who else it was yeah it was yeah. crutchlow and nakagami yeah yeah, so basically he retired after 2020. Um, so yeah, could be that he was more successful uh, from 2015 to 2018 than Danny Pedrosa. I don't know. Would be interesting to know. Most definitely. Because Danny Pedrosa, from a success perspective, basically front-loaded his career very much. He was very good before Mark Marcus arrived. He almost won a championship in... 2012 yeah 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 and but also you could argue that back then only the honda and the yamaha were competitive so it was easier for him to achieve good results than it is yeah. right now with everybody being competitive but yeah yeah maybe this is some homework i will find out later but uh yeah Back to Mark Marcus. Uh, very excited to see how it's going. I assume he will race again after Misano because it's Aragon. It's his home track. He will want to race there, and yeah, it certainly will be uh, great for the uh, for the fans. And then we can't forget that we have sprint races next year, and yeah. Mark Marcus uh, having double the amount of uh, of races. And let's be honest, like most of the crashes, most of the action happens in the first 10, 15 laps. Um, so yeah, that's basically the most dangerous zone of a race. Um, it's yeah, it doesn't make life easier for him. 
even uh, if he doesn't crash with the whole body situation, you don't know what his conditioning is. Yeah, it's it's difficult, but I'm excited to see him back on the bike. It will add a little bit more spice. And I'm very excited, as Fabio said, if he can maybe uh, have a have a little bit uh, of this disruption in the championship battle. Would be kind of fun. But who says that it's for Fabio's favor, you know? Because Marcus won't give a shit, even though they're buddy-buddy. But yeah. I don't know. Mark gonna mess everybody up. Yeah. I mean, we had uh, Moto 2 and Moto 3 on all this, but considering the time, I believe we are all, uh, we are definitely over two hours. Um, two hours? God. Yeah, we started... Right now we have uh, 10.45 and we started at uh, 20.35. Damn. Like... 8.35 p.m. Do you use the the whole uh, clock or just the half clock? Um, oh, I use the whole clock. Yeah, okay. I don't know uh, where people start to use the 12-hour uh, clock with a.m. and p.m. and when people start to use the 24-hour clock. Yeah, I well, on my phone, I use 24-hour clocks, so I just I just know, you know. Yeah, yeah, I would say uh, we skip Moto2 and Moto3 because, yeah, Alonso Lopez won. Basically, the best thing that happened this season. I'm so happy for him. Vietti, Shout out Alonso Lopez. Brilliant performance. Vietti crashing out of the championship contention. Now for... Typical. Um, Augusto and Ogura still head-to-head -to, -head to the title. Really close race. Dennis Foggia's going back uh, into the title race and uh, Garcia kind of blows it. I mean, it's still uh, it's still possible in Moto3 because it's always chaos. But yeah, the black flag to me was necessary because it's just stupid to pick a fight uh, with people who are actually racing for points. Then Joel Kelso, he went from P30 to P14. Very impressive. He... Um, had like a break problem in qualifying, but Misano's actually one of his favorite tracks. He won there last year and beat Danny Olgado in the junior championship. Uh, Dennis Entry, he uh, injured himself jerking off. His right arm is completely shit uh, after a hard pornhub session for the post-race party. <laughs> <laughs> but he still finished in P P4. We already discussed the move to uh, Moto2 with the Boscoscuro thing, which I don't understand, but I will ask uh, the right people. So, yeah, basically, this is what happened um, in the lower classes. I'm sorry that we got carried away. I got the feeling we had a lot of topics to discuss where we went down a couple of rabbit holes because we didn't talk for so long. Yeah, the rubber holes were yeah. great. This was a great discussion. Yeah. yeah. This is the insightful off the wall stuff that people want to see. This yeah. this was really good. I enjoyed this a lot. This was great. Yeah. And I hope you uh you enjoy the new background because um as I said in the last episode, I tried a different platform. It was total shit show because it only recorded my part and not the part of uh, Maddie, which was a big shame. And uh, with with uh, Zoom, the thing is, it's super easy to make because you just click on recording and it's done. But the two pictures who aren't full screen, they get on my nerves. 
but now this is maybe a solution where we find a good background and yeah maybe we can adjust a little bit uh the frames right now we decided keelan with the circle would look nicely on the blue and white uh, track limits thing and uh, me here with uh, the blurred out background whatever cut out background yeah maybe we can do something with a green screen or do some crazy shit have like mm -hmm. a great background this would be nice and yeah over the weekend i visited my mom so i have my standard microphone when i'm back at home in my flat i will have the new microphone and this should be better and uh yeah so I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you enjoy the new setting. Uh, if you have any suggestions, uh, suggestions, difficult language, uh, leave it down in the comments below. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And I believe we have two weeks to Aragon, right? I think so, yes. I, I believe it is two weeks. Yeah, I would have actually preferred one week and then have a bigger layoff before the overseas races. But we all know that Dorna isn't able to make a proper calendar. So, yeah. Um, These are the people who thought we wanted sprint racing, Leo. I mean, expecting common sense from Dorna is kind of... It, it, it is, I understand why, but expecting it from them is kind of a, bit too, a bridge too far. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, I mean, uh, next week I'll be on vacation in Italy. So, trying to recharge the batteries a little well bit. deserved by the way very yeah. well deserved yeah i just had a month off in august <laughs> well, well deserved yeah no but it's my girlfriend's birthday and we decided to uh go to italy for a week celebrate there and uh yeah recharge all the batteries then come home and off into the winter and uh yeah summer is almost over so let's Let's um, enjoy the last couple of uh, sunny days before it's just shitty and miserable outside. And we will see each other in two weeks again in after Aragon. And I'm looking forward to it with maybe a new cool background. Most definitely a new cool background. Thank you very much, Leo. Thank you very much, everybody, for watching once again. We really appreciate it. It's good to be back. And we will see you all on the other side of Aragon. Goodbye.